You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Proteum Machining, and this week I'm joined by... Hello, I'm Adam Demuth. I own and operate Demuth Tool and Design, and we make stamping tooling for multi-slide presses, and we do a little design of stamping tooling for not multi-slide presses, but regular progressive dies. Well, welcome back, Adam. I appreciate you coming on again. For anybody who wants to hear Adam's backstory... Adam was like one of our first guests on the podcast, and it was episode 12. So head all the way back there. Listen to that one if you want to hear how he got to owning and and operating his own shop. But welcome back. Yeah, a fair amount's changed since uh, episode 12 for uh, both of us, I guess. But yeah, um, the shop's doubled its floor space. We went from uh, 190, and now we're up to 380 square feet. So... (laughs) I say That's- I say doubled. It sounds better than added 190 square feet. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good way to phrase it to customers. Oh man, we're growing. We doubled. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you got a new uh, CNC grinder since then, and uh, you've really I- expanded the business quite a bit. It seems like. Yeah, um, in terms of billings uh, compared to what we were doing on, on a month and average in 2019 to now. We're up about 40% from then, but I feel like 2019 was, you know, that was our first year on our own. So is it that we're 40% better or was that just kind of a light year, you know? So, but I do feel that there has been a lot of growth. I just don't know how tremendous it was if it was just, you know, that was my first year and I was making a lot of mistakes quoting or I wasn't getting jobs in when I should have been. So, uh, but I'm happy with the way things have turned out for the business. So. Yeah, I, I think that actually a, probably a 40% growth shows that you were doing things right off the bat rather than the other way around. Because I know I've talked to a lot of small businesses and like our first year to second year, I think we doubled or tripled our billings because it went from like a few grand, you know, to mm. like bet more than that. So th- the fact that you were able to jump in and actually make a viable business right off the bat, it, is, it speaks to your every, every once in a while, I'll get a repeat job from that first full-time year. And uh, I'm like, oh, they, they want me to honor my old pricing. Let's pull that up, see what that up was. And it's <laughs> and sometimes it's pretty good, but other times I'm scratching my head like, how did I think that was a smart number to make that for? <laughs> um, but yeah, quoting is what I'm finding. It's one of the the hardest things to master for me so far. And that's something I did a lot of prior to this, um, just in different contexts. And it's not so much like, you know, exactly what your input costs are. You have a really, really good historic understanding of how long something like that was taking you. But there's this X factor of how much do you think the customer will pay for it? And that's, that's the murkiness. Um, it's it's a lot of knowing the person and knowing how how big of a hurry they're in and and that's that's the art of quoting that I have not quite mastered yet. It, it's really tough. I, I was just talking to a few people about this. Uh, it, it's it, yeah, like you said, it, there's part of it that's like you know here's cost of material and time and all that, and then there's yeah what the market will bear. You know, I, I was talking to somebody and they were quoting something and it was like an aluminum fixture plate and he was like oh you know here's where i'm at with it i was like no no no, it's tooling like even if it's simple for you 
this is not going to be a repeat job. I was like, you need to bump that price up quite a bit. Like it's a one-off and it's tooling. Like do you yeah. come at it like that. A lot of times I'll be like really high on something like that. And I have to explain to my customer, I'm not charging necessarily for my labor on this. I'm charging for the liability of the project. Um, you know, if it's a thousand dollar piece of material and I only have two hours of grinding in it, it's not going to be a thousand dollars plus two hours of shop rate. It's going to be probably triple material cost minimum, because if I scrap it, there's, there's no amount of energy I could put into it to try to still make money. If I have to buy a second thousand dollar piece of material, you know, so you need to have that enough billings in there to, to cover a mistake like that. And so, yeah. Certain work, you just have to. You, I have a, actually I have a circuit breaker in my quoting spreadsheet where the price cannot be less than three times material. So, oh, I like that. Uh, that's a, something I'll actually have to write a note about because I actually just said it on the thing on the episode I just released with uh, Jeffrey. But I'm trying to hone my quoting spreadsheet to where Brad can jump in and start quoting and get you know within ten percent of what I'm getting. Cause right now I'm doing all the quoting and there is that kind of, you know, I, I talked to Brad I'm like, Oh, here's what the co- quoting spreadsheet said. And then here's what I ended up quoting them. And he's like, well, where's, how does that equal that? And I'm like, well, black magic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there is just like kind of my big thing is heat treat cost. And so I have multiple customers that I'm sharing the heat treat burden on. You know, I have like a milk run to the heat treater every week. Mm-hmm. And so how do I split that up? And what I ended up doing is it just became, I know I spend X amount with the heat treater every month, very, very consistently. And so that just got rolled into my hourly rate versus trying to assign, oh, he has seven out of the 13 components in this order getting heat treated. It's going to be this much extra for these seven components. And I just put it on my hourly rate and it became a lot easier to digest that way. That's smart. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. So is your heat treater just charging you lot charges then and whatever you fit in is what you fit in? Yeah, or? it's uh, it's up to $50 for the lot or 50 pounds for the lot charge. And in my history, I have only once exceeded 50 pounds. So most of what I do, like a month's work fits in a shoebox. So <laughs> uh, I think that kind of annoys them. Uh, this week, I took them 131 parts. And it was in like one of those little, little tiny McMaster boxes. And I think that really, really irritated them. So well, it's, sure just, it's, it's a like, lot of parts to track and, you know, count yeah. and make sure. So, Well, and it's one of those processes like anodized where it's not a, a large value add. And so mm-hmm. like it's a lot of liability on their end and on your end for what's really not, I'm sure not that much money for a lot of charge. I mean, I'm sure it's not cheap, but it's still relative to part cost. Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder like how it works out for them. They have a product line that gets heat treated. And so I suspect this is just like icing on top for them is how they view it. You know, it's not, it's not like their core business is heat treating. So I, I considered bringing heat treat in house, but for all the more hassle it is to drive 15 minutes and drop it off. I, I'll just continue to do that. So, yeah, we've actually had identical thought patterns about anodize because our anodizer is an in-house anodizer for a large manufacturer and they do their whole product line, you know, every single day 
you know, 40 plus hours a week and then they do anodize on the side and that's why they're so good at it. And it was the same thing. It was like, you know, they're five minutes up the road. Like why go through the hassle if I don't have to? Yeah. And like a heat treat oven to accommodate my size parts really wouldn't be that bad, but I'd also have to get a Rockwell tester, um, which I don't know, maybe I should have despite not having heat treat in house anyway, just for quality assurance. But eh, one thing at a time. But, um, yeah. you know, it's just it's one more thing. Like it takes me 15 minutes each way. So 30 minutes to get a batch of parts heat treated. And by the time I got everything bagged and stainless and and through heat treat, that would exceed 30 minutes. And so it's just easier for me to drive it and pay the fee. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. So I guess uh, what other lessons have you learned in the last two years about running your own business? I think that that uh, we actually had. One question about that, uh, Sean Handerhan, he was asking all about sh- small shop stuff, what it's like to run your own shop, work-life balance, retirement savings, etc. Uh, so like I kind of learned there's things I should spend my time doing and things I shouldn't waste time doing. And, and one of them is like material prep. I don't own a saw. I'm not really interested in owning a saw. Uh, up until recently, I could just place an order for material and have it the next day. And if that meant I couldn't continue running that day because I was, you know, needed a critical piece of material. Okay. I'll go, you know, play video games or watch a movie or something. You know, it didn't really hurt my feelings too much. Uh, now next day turned into like three to five days. Um, so I have to be a little more predictive of my needs material wise and get those orders placed. But for the most part, it's, uh, it's not a big deal for me. So, you know, it's, you're not going to make any money with a plate saw and a saw rack and $10,000 worth of steel on it. I'll let somebody else handle that and I'll do what I do, which is finish work, grinding, hard milling. So, yeah, I can see that for sure. That was a lesson that, you know, I constantly was hearing on the bomb of like, oh, why are you doing this? Like pay somebody to do it. And it never really struck home until I like really started putting more time into the business. And it was like, yeah, I just need to be making money. Like, I don't need to be doing these projects unless I'm doing them as a passion project. But like anything that's takes me away from making chips doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And even the passion projects, like about once a month, I think, oh, that'd be cool if I, you know, build a drill press <laughs> and I got to like talk myself off the cliff a little. And, you know, I'd even go so far as to like have it catted out and everything and show Josh and get his input. And it's like, okay, we're not actually going to do this. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, so like my, that's my problem is my, mach- my hobby is machining. And so I want to be out here making dumb stuff, but at the same time I get a lot of the satisfaction of a hobby by making money so I could make money, satisfy my hobby itch and, you know, not have a bunch of useless crap hanging around. So I just have to stay disciplined. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it can be tough though. I think that we all struggle from that of like, Oh, but it would be so cool to do this. And then you're like, Oh, but you know, yeah. Like you said, making money, that's probably what I should be doing. <laughs> so before we go on to questions and stuff, why don't you give us a roundup of what machinery you have and support equipment and all of that, because things have changed drastically in the last, two years since you've been on. Yeah. So, um, haven't gotten rid of any pieces. Like my first piece is still the Haas mini mill. 
Uh, since you've talked to me last, I have put a fourth axis on, and I made a cantilever mount for a Langvice, and that's been really, really helpful for a lot of the parts that fit in the palm of your hand, um, just to be able to like flip it over and add that dumb little annoying tap tool on the side of the part. Um, <laughs> so that's that's been a, a big improvement, and that kind of pushed a need for an overall revamping of my tool management on the Haas. And so I purchased more Cat 40 holders, which I kind of a cringe to do because I don't think I'll own another Cat 40 machine. So it's constantly like, I don't want to buy more holders. When I go to get something else, you know, I'll have all these holders or I'll have to sell them with the machine. And, but at the same time, every time I add one, it really improves the flow of things. And so added more holders. They're all preset. Um, I have a custom tool change macro. So if it sees a tool number greater than 10, it empties the tool and the spindle into its spot in the carousel, goes to position 10 on the carousel, which is empty. And then it sits and waits for you to hand load. And then when you hand load and hit cycle start, it, you know, commences with tool 22 or whatever. And, uh, so that kind of got me past the hurdle of having a small carousel. Uh, and, really allowed me to make a lot of these tool parts I'm seeing a lot quicker along with the fourth axis. So that's been, I like that. So what does it do with the tool? If it's greater than 10 after it's done, like if you go from 11 to 12, does it just sit there and wait for you to hand load again? Yep. Yep. Okay. So anytime, anytime it's a value greater than 10, it just waits. So sometimes position 10 won't be empty, but the way the logic is, it's, it's not at all bothered by it. And when I first started doing that, you know, the concern, like you, you plan out a system in your head prior to implementing it. And my concern was misloading a tool, you know, that could be catastrophic. And so what I was having it doing is each time you hit cycle start, it would go over and probe length and check and see is basically the broken tool detection cycle. And Mm -hmm. it had to be within two thou of the, uh, measure value length yeah yeah and um that was a foolproof methodology but man did that add cycle time like if you had like four or five tools doing that it it was like an extra three four minutes and i noticed on a lot of the one-offs i didn't need it because i was hovered over the feed hold anyway right um you know so and most of what I do is one off. So I was watching it go over, check, it check, and I'd still be hovered on the feed hold. It'd go up to the part. And so I kind of got rid of that. If I ever had an employee, I might bring that back in. I have that option. But for just me, I don't feel the need. Okay. And then how are you doing that as far as code wise? Are you did you alias a new M code or are you just running a sub program instead of a tool change? Exactly. So I alias a new M code and it goes to a safe tool position. And basically it's looking at <clears throat> the on the Haas, anytime a T value is uh or anytime a letter value is used, it's the it's dumped into the variable table at the variable number that equals that letter's position in the alphabet. Right, 1 through 26. And, yeah. yeah. And so it just checks that and um, just a greater than equal to statement and it goes to a different subroutine then. Cool. And then you just change the uh, post to use that instead of M6? 
No, it is using M6. Oh, you just o- over-aliased M6. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like that. So it is a bone stock fusion post, which is what I wanted. Um, I like I that. probably could have done it all through fusion, but it just seemed like something easy enough to do on the control side. And that's... You, you, you tend to go the direction you're more comfortable. And I always feel a little uncomfortable when I'm doing post-processor work. But I've done enough GNM code and variable... Uh, macro variable work that I, I do that more comfortably. And so that's the direction I went. I think that's smart. Cause then if, like you said, down the road, if you do get an employee, you don't have to worry about like, Oh, what if they choose the wrong post? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's smart. I, I like that a lot. So you've got the Haas still, and then the Mori still, obviously. Yeah. And since last you and I spoke, we added, um, we added a Herman Schmidt milling magnet, and that pretty much does all of our work holding. And then we also added a Bloom uh, laser and spindle probe package. And that pretty much turned that machine into just a printing press for money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the knife parts just flow through it effortlessly. Uh, they have some pretty tight features on the counterboard depths on those. And to be able to just probe each handle probe the tool, park the counterbore within a few tenths of, you know, what they want every single time is, is, uh, really, really handy. And, uh, and then on the, the tool and die work, I have the knives parts all on pallets and they just sit on top of the magnet. So when I'm ready to to, do tool and die more work, I just turn off the magnet, slide the knife pallet off and then put my, my die part on. So really, really quick to interrupt knife production make a quick punch or die or vice versa so so how how are you liking the the laser because i i thought i remember you saying in your post about it that they were worried about uh oil and small chips and stuff affecting it i have never had a problem with the oil so okay um i do a tremendous amount of broken tool detection and one time I had a misdiagnosis of a broken tool and that's out of like thousands of detections. Like it says tool broken, but it very much so was not. And I don't know what that was about. Um, I've had very, very good luck measuring the tools I do uh, in terms of most of the time I'm not chasing diameter, but depth. And it does that extremely reliably. So I'm very pleased. And then some of the other cool stuff that I didn't really think I would use as much is finding the theoretical sharp corner of uh, chamfer tools. So you Ooh. can get right out of the gate, super, super accurate chamfer sizes, which on the tool and die stuff eh, isn't really critical. But uh, the knife stuff, it's nice for when you swap chamfer tools, getting that same consistent edge break because they might have like a five thou edge break on some parts. Mm-hmm. And if it's like a seventh thou edge break after you, you know, that, that, that difference catches the eye when it's such a small chamfer. Definitely. So, well, I, and I've had customer prints where it's like five thou max or three to five thou. And then that's when you're like, Oh, yeah. great. Okay. That, that gets a little dicey. <laughs> yeah. I had one this spring and it was a one thou chamfer and uh, <laughs> it was like way down in a counter bore to the smaller and it would have had to have been an eighth inch chamfer tool or smaller. And, uh, I was like, how about 
I just go in there after it's machined with a Ruby and just break the edge real quick. He goes, oh, that's all I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm not going to try to machine that. Right. Yeah. That, that You just added a whole lot of cost to that part if you have to have it machined. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that it's still working up for you, though. And, and the Herman Schmidt magnet just, I mean, everybody's mouth was watering when you put that on there. Like all of the Herman Schmidt you've got over the last couple of years. I have a lot stuff. of mahogany cases now. So. <laughs> Well, actually, since you brought that up, um, let's let's talk about cutting mahogany cases and stirring up the internet. Oh man, a lot of a lot of <laughs> sour people over that. Um, yeah, like I got a new squaring chuck, and they must use like a one size fits all case that they apply to multiple products. And it was like I don't know, a quarter inch too tall to fit in the drawer with all my other grinding tooling. And I bought this new list of cabinets specifically for my grinding tooling. And now I'm going to have to find a new home for this one piece. And I was like, oh, that kind of annoys me. And then I noticed <laughs> like there's some head height above the squaring chuck between it and the lid. I go, oh, if I just make the lid shorter, it should work fine. And uh, so I'm like, well, how am I going to solve this? I don't have any carpentry tools. And then I'm like, oh, well. When I just throw it in the mill, I have this really nice uh, carbide slitting saw, and it put a beautiful cut on it. Like, just looks sanded almost, you know, super, super smooth. But, uh, yeah, people were either offended that I was cutting wood in a mill or that I was uh, cutting a Herman Schmidt box. So, (laughs) like, um, Sarah, who runs Herman Schmidt's Instagram page, I think she was even a little put off by it. So Really? Yeah, because yeah. I, I reached out to you and I was just like, oh, that's a great idea. And you're like, man, I pissed some people off. <laughs> but it, it looked great and it, it worked. And I mean, that's. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense to not modify your tools to suit your needs. So, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I was pleased with it. So I guess nothing else matters. But that's a, um, a Maritool slitting saw. And they do a great job with that line of products. That was my next question because you you've had a lot of luck with that, like tabbing off fourth axis parts and stuff, right? Yeah, I tab, and when I do, I leave a thou tab. Oh, geez! And it comes off, and then I can rub it on the stone, and then the lines completely disappeared. And since everything I'm doing is getting heat treated and ground afterwards, whatever surface pattern there is, you know, it's not as smooth as a, a face milled f- surface. It doesn't matter because I'm grinding it after heat treat. Um, right. But yeah, it it's such a light cutting pressure. It doesn't mind even a one thou tab. Like when it comes out, it the part's still standing vertically. It doesn't you know bend over as you're tabbing it. So really, I also <clears throat> I also have a pH horn version, mm-hmm. and on certain parts I'll use it because it feeds. I'm going to say ten times faster. Oh, wow. It's it's dramatically faster. But the cutting pressure is so high that you have to leave a much thicker tab. And the the surface, like the second side of the tab to get cut, it kind of leans as you're exiting. Um, so you get a little less flat surface. So, but yeah, if I have a bunch of something I'm doing, I might throw that one in. But it makes a lot of noise and it's a lot of drama and the inserts are really expensive. <laughs> so what uh width is the cutter that you're using from Maritol? It is 63 thou. 
Okay. And that's pretty reliable. I think it'll go up to 550 thou into the bar. So I could do, I could process one inch parts, one inch wide parts with that one. And then I have one that'll go three quarter. But the problem is the Haas doesn't have a lot of low end uh, torque. Mm -hmm. So that one's a little, a little scary to run sometimes. So if you're getting into some tougher tool steels, I uh, I don't consider tabbing once I get past one inch bar width. With but most most of what I do fits in a one inch bar width. So very cool. But well, yeah, I love that uh, trunnion you made for the the vice. Like you're now the second person I've seen where they've kind of sunk the vice into the trunnion. And made it so all the forces are are at the the face of the trunnion, more or less. And I, I really like that idea. Yeah, my goal was to try to get the part because I had an idea for part size to be as near the center of rotation as possible. Um, and I couldn't. I'm not great at designing new systems with no experience. Like I've never used a fourth axis. Done a lot of fifth axis work, but I've never really done that type of work on a fourth. So I didn't know what would be smart, what wouldn't. So I'm like, let's just build the cheapest version of this we can, figure out what we like, what we dislike. Uh, And so I think the next version, I'll go ahead and get the Lang receiver, sink it down, maybe even have like a gooseneck where it drops down a level and keep the vice relatively in the same position, but get that Lang quick change base under it. Awesome. That's very cool. And then Probably. the other thing I want to do is underneath on the bottom side of the trunnion have like a maybe a four inch by four inch flat face with tap tools. And so I could swing to A90 and now I have mm-hmm. an angle plate. Oh. Or I could swing to A180 and now I have a flat surface where if I just need to like toe clamp something down to a table, it's there. Because um, I do I get like some that. of the, you know, like the occasional like engrave my motorcycle part or something type jobs where you just there's no good way to hold it and you need to use toe clamps and a pallet that's a great idea i like i really like that because i've had some parts where i'm standing up in jaws and you know two inch hard jaws you're like oh this is kind of sketchy this is not the smartest thing i've done (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've i've done the a90 and held stuff in a vice like that on the lang Mm -hmm. um you're just like before you hit go, it's like, will the A axis move? And you're like looking through the code, looking for any A moves. And, <laughs> um, you know, you just have to really make sure it's not going to do anything you don't want. But uh, so, yeah, that's kind of it for the Haas and the Mori. Um, I did get a list of for in the milling side of the shop, too, for storing all the milling tools. And um, I made like a little plastic holder that, that the cat 40 kind of locks into and that's holding everything. And then I got some tool tags from Hoffman and okay. that's how I'm doing the numbered systems there. But, um, how are you liking I'll, your list? Is? Um, so I have the list I'm standing in front of now is 10 years old and it, you know, it's list of quality. It's great. These new ones, it took three months to get them. And there's just a bunch of tiny little annoying quality things. Like there's like a plastic cover that you could peel off and slip tags under. Mm-hmm. And then they like snap lock back in. And on the new ones, some of them don't lock in. 
oh. or just like a jar a little. Um, some of the drawers, like when you look at the face of the lista, they're jig-jagged each way all the way down. Really? Like they're not a Everything works the way it's supposed to. The drawers slide open. But um, yeah, kind of a, I don't know, kind of a rushed quality look, I guess. But I try not to be too critical about stuff like that. But when you have a previous example from 10 years ago right in front of you, you kind of you kind of notice. So, yeah, well, and it's it's tough, like when you're spending that kind of money, too, because it. Yeah. It, the the whole reason you're supposedly spending this money is because they are the best cabinets in the world. You know, it's like yeah. them and Vid, Vidmar, but like same company if, now. Are they really? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I and had I'm no like, idea. I'm like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna get rid of one of the lines. Obviously, no, nope, they still make both. So, <laughs> I wonder if that's because I've heard that Vidmar is mostly bought by the U.S. government. That's what I heard too. Like they keep the Vidmar alive just for that lucrative government money. Yeah. So 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 did Stanley buy Lista or did they sell off Vidmar to Lista? Do you know? Lista is owned by Stanley Black and Decker now. So Stanley. No way. Yeah. Wow. And it's That's weird, crazy. like because you think about Black and Decker power tools and like how crappy they are, right? And then and then you're writing a huge check to Black and Decker. <laughs> <laughs> They are so, a behemoth now of a company, too. That's crazy. I, I remember, like, the first time I had that revelation about them, I was installing helicoils, and I saw that helicoil is owned by Stanley Black & Decker. So I was like, oh, that's that's weird. And when you think about how many helicoils get put in things every day, it's like, oh, that's probably a really nice cash cow. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, all of the government contracts that require that specific, oh, yeah. you know, spec helicoil from helicoil, of course. And yeah, that's yep. crazy. Wow. You got to buy the special helicoil driver. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's another insert. I can't remember what it's called, but I think it's owned by helicoil as well. And like the gauges you have to buy from them, they don't mm-hmm. give you any of the specs. So you can't get custom ones made. Yep. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's cra- spiral lock. I think it is. Now that yeah, I think about it, I think uh, so. But, it's a nice little racket for them. Yeah. Wow. 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 Um, well, so, but what about grinders? That's yeah, been the so big purchase. This time last year, I was, it's actually almost the exact same project. It's like same type of machine. All the toolings get bolted to slightly different part getting made, but everything looks the same. And, uh, I was like, boy, this really sucks. I was doing manual grinding for like four weeks straight. I was like, I think it's time to automate. And, I, I knew like even an automated grinder wouldn't quite be enough. I'd also need to like kind of throw some money at fixturing and souping up the current manual grinder. And so I started down this very expensive project. And about that time, I went over and toured uh, Parker Majestic and their parent company, Penn United Technologies. And I had a strong inkling I was going to get to Parker. And when I started looking into the Okamoto, it immediately became clear that, yeah, you'd need to get the Parker because the Okamoto's were coming out of Thailand. And even this time last year, like the supply chain issues were prevalent. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't think it'll be too bad getting it over here. But um, so I, I didn't believe that. And Spencer <laughs> Webb figured that out for me. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, he placed his grinder order about the same time I did. 
and he didn't get his for like another three months. Right. And for his product, that wasn't killer. You know, he could continue doing what he was doing, but that would have, that would have been a huge problem for me. And Parker was just so responsive and how quickly they were able to get it to my shop that that's ultimately, you know, what drove me to their direction. So, um, but yeah, the manual grinder, I knew I needed to do some upgrades to it. So it got new anti-vibration feet, but also I'm somewhat tall. So it got put on anti-vibration risers. So I don't have to hunch over as much now. And, uh, as I was installing the new grinder, the digital readout died on it. <laughs> and I wasn't expecting to upgrade that, but there was a spell where I had no working grinder yet two very expensive. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it got a new Heidenheim digital readout package put on. And as I'm learning with Heidenheim, they don't really do packages. It's all a cart. You have to figure out everything you need and they sell it to you. But, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not like there's no hand holding through the process. So, <laughs> so what, what model did you end up going with and what are I the believe specs it's on it? 7013. And I, I got the identical scales that the CNC grinder has. Okay. And the theory there is if I ever have like a fouled scale, being able to swap parts for diagnostics is really handy. Um, so the actual readout, is um it's a mill readout per se it's three axis it has like bolt hole patterns and all that stuff i don't really use any of that uh there is one option which potentially i would use which is the ability to machine an arc or a radius oh, so cool. if you had a corner radius on your wheel you could step around the corner of a part right and generate kind a radius on your yeah yeah exact same concept yeah. That's something we do a lot on manual grinders, but currently I have a program on my calculator. Oh, really? Speaks my language, so to speak. Um, okay. And so, but uh, when I got the CNC grinder, that pretty much evaporated any need to ever do that on a manual mill or manual grinder again. So right. uh, it's so quick to do on the CNC. It's, there, there's no point. Um, so what's the the model and, and specs on the new grinder or the, on the CNC grinder? So it's literally the exact same machine, just um, six by eighteen travels. It's got a more powerful motor. It's a two horsepower versus one, and then it has a Siemens eight twenty eight control. Uh, oh, also the motor is a six thousand RPM versus thirty six hundred, which turned out to be pretty handy for a certain project. Um. And the only two options I had to get were, well, I optioned it to come with a, a Walker Ceramax magnet. Um, and then the, the coolant system, most of the CNC Parker Majestics out in the wild don't have coolant. Um, a lot of people doing dry grinding with them. And I kind of went back and forth as to which I wanted to do. And I still do. Um, but this week I'm very happy to have coolant. I'll say that. Um, next week I'll be like, man, this coolant guard's in the way. Why'd I get coolant? But <laughs> <laughs> so Tuck's garage asks, what are your favorite parts about it? And what's your least favorite part about it? I guess coolant guard might be both. <laughs> um, yeah. So the coolant guard's kind of weird. It's like a projector screen, but it's clear, but it rolls up from the bottom. 
Oh, interesting. And it's very, very good about not being in the way. And it it's actually pretty comprehensive in terms of coverage, but it is impossible to look clean. Like <laughs> It's like clear vinyl. Um, it's already after a year, got a little haze to it. And I don't know, I, I like to keep a tidy operation. So it always kind of having that hazy look drives me insane. Whereas like, you know, Lexi and after it starts to wear, you just swap it out. Um, but, uh, no, that doesn't bother me too, too much because if someone's coming over, I just lower it and then, you know, you don't, you don't see the, uh, the plastic. My least favorite part about it's probably the coolant pump. It's, it's really loud. It is easily the loudest thing on that machine. Like the machine itself is whisper quiet, but the coolant pump is, is, uh, it's bigger than the Haas's coolant pump. I don't know horsepower wise what it is but i'd I'd say it's probably well over a horse and a half and it just it sounds really really loud and it makes touching off kind of annoying sometimes if you have the coolant running and you're on the grinder next to it so um but as far as like the rest of the machine it's flawless um and i'd say my favorite part is my favorite part is the uh control integration the cycles are so well built you can easily tell that people who grind tool and die components every day were involved the way the cycles program it's in our language that we talk in um sometimes you deal with japanese grinders and they have a different way about thinking about approaching work whereas this it's extremely consistent with the way every shop I've ever worked in talks about grinding. And so I really, really appreciate that. That's great. So is, is Siemens the only control that Parker offers? Yeah. And they offer the control in 828 or on the larger surface grinder and some of their cylindrical grinders, you could do the 840. Okay. So on some of their cylindrical grinders, they have like, um, continuous C-axis contouring. So you can do like cams and, you know, hex shapes on the end of a shaft or something. Uh, and I guess for that, you need the the power of the 840 to handle it. Um, and you can you can option fourth and fifth axis onto the, the surface grinder. And I think that also pushes you into the 840. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, first... First Siemens 828 experience. I'm pretty happy with it so far. Okay. Very cool. Well, and you mentioned in talking about that, uh, Lynx Design asks, how do you keep your shop so clean and pristine? And you mentioned that that's a, a big driver for you. So, Well, the, the number one thing is you have to have like a mental motivation. And so part of my hourly rate is I want to get paid one minute of every hour for cleaning. I don't use it on every hour. But at the end of the week, you know, I have like 40 minutes of currency to clean with, so to speak, that I'm getting paid for and compensated for. And when in your mind you're getting paid for, and it's, it's, you know, just kind of, you could say any amount of shop overhead covers that you don't have to have a specific cleaning line item. But for me, it, it tricks me into being okay with spending the time to do it. Uh, it's kind of a mental thing, I guess. I like um, that. But also minimize horizontal space. 
I don't have a lot of benches and tables because I know how I am with a bench and a table. Like, you know, I have a 40 by 22 inch desk I'm standing in front of. And, uh, yeah, after the end of the week, there's not a lot of wood visible. And, Mm -hmm. but when you have such a small space takes three minutes to sort and put everything away. So, but yeah, if you have, if you give me a big bench, I will fill it with crap. Yeah, well, I, I was just talking to Stefan about that, about our, our new surface plate and how, you know, I, I chided Brad. I was like, we're not going to make this a table. And then, you know, I've left yeah. crap all over it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, make a make a dome shaped cover for it or something. So you yeah, can't load anything on it. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Make it impossible. But uh, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't uh, even have a big surface plate for that same reason. I just run 12 by 18. But I, I imagine, you know, with the parts you have. That's yeah, there, there isn't suits. a huge need for a big one. But yeah. in my mind, I'm always like, I should buy a 48-inch surface plate so I can, you know, recondition machine tools. And, <laughs> and there goes all my space. Right, you yeah. Know, so. uh, you can build your drill press and, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, let's see. So questions from the, from, uh, the audience. Chris, the pragmatic machinist, asks, is there an automatic feed upgrade for your manual grinder that you are thinking about? Because he was watching your story the other day of, you know, you cranking your manual grinder while your CNC one ran in the back and was wondering if that's a future purchase. Uh, No. So a lot of the manual grinder stuff, the one thing I do miss is automatic feed for the elevation, moving Mm -hmm. the head up and down. Um, Parkers have like 18 inches of head travel. And oh, wow. to, cr- to crank it from the bottom to the top can be a drag. Uh, but uh, most of what I do on it, like the the size of the part I'm grinding is, you know, under an inch by an inch. So it, it doesn't really take a lot of muscle work to reciprocate back and forth a few times. Um, I have seen some interesting homebrew solutions for auto feeds over the years, including Stefan's pistol drill and zip tie arrangement. He had on Instagram the other day. I've seen people use the servo brand feeds off of bridge ports with some stop dogs to mm-hmm. create cross feed travel power feed. Uh, and I, I've seen people do full fledged servo deals and I kind of considered all of that. And then I was like, Oh, I'll just buy this CNC one that does that already. So um, my, my issue with auto feeds Usually it's a continuous travel on the cross feed and ideal grinding parameters is a step reciprocate step reciprocate, not a continuous. And so the continuous travel because it's much easier from a motion control perspective, but uh, yeah. So I don't know. I wouldn't probably spend the money and time to retrofit a manual grinder because semi-automatic grinders are, used market just as cheap as manual grinders even on the new market uh semi-automatic okamoto is about the same price as the the full manual okamoto so oh wow so actually that brings up another question moving forward as as you grow the company would you ever consider getting another manual grinder or would yeah you just go yeah CNC? actually I, I would um I, I've had the thought like a good portion of the, everything I do has some element of flat and parallel. That's usually 
the first thing I do to a part is make a flat and parallel surface to another one. Uh, and that's not where I make my money. You know, I, I, I do more intricate work after that. And so I thought, you know, as I grow, if the grinding becomes a bottleneck again, an easy solution might be to buy a, a basic automatic, you know, back and forth dumb hydraulic surface grinder to handle the flat and parallel. And I let the CNC do the more intricate slotting and radius grinding. Uh, and so that's a possibility. I really, really, really like the grinder Stefan just bought with the tilting head. That yeah, could, it's su- super neat. Like having it facing that way too is is really interesting. Yeah, standing standing in line with the wheel like that, um, that could be a huge boon for my operation. Um, and even just like a small, some kind of high RPM spindle type grinder that lets me do bores might be interesting. That could be a jig grinder with a flat spin table, so I could do cylindrical grinding, or it could just be a cylindrical grinder. Uh, it could be anything in between. I just, I just need some moving parts and some rotating parts and I can make it do what I need. So, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you know, we, we all love that CNC does so much, but it's nice to hear that there's still quite a big need for the manual equipment as well. Yeah. And on the grinding, the thing that CNC does so well, isn't necessarily the grinding. It does a great job grinding. It's the dressing. Um, oh, you okay. spend a lot of time dressing when you're doing advanced tool steels and powdered metals and it like it does it automatically and quickly. And I turned the machine on yesterday and I ground all day to plus or minus a 10th tolerance. And I had not made a single adjustment since the day before. That's how accurately <laughs> it dresses and maintains size. Uh, it's just super, super consistent. And when you're manual grinding, you have a pretty good idea how much you took off, but you're going to, you're going to do a tester. You're, you're going to spend more time ensuring quality than on the CNC. It's just always right there. How do you set that, uh, dressing? Uh, how do you set the dressing up? Like, do you, is there a cycle of dress? So, so, so do you, do you grind something and then measure it and then tell the machine what it was and then what it is? Yeah. Um, out. So basically first, you know, startup, I don't have to do anything if the wheel's already on and everything's, you know, from the day before, but like, let's say it's a brand new machine. You mount your wheel, you tell the control approximately the wheel diameter. Now, for the most part, the machine does not give a crap what the wheel diameter is. It's just more of a operator. Hey, this is about how big your wheel is. If you replace it at five inch or at five and three eighths, just so you know. There is some stuff, though, where wheel diameter is important because that isn't a two-axis grinder. It can grind in three-axis. So when you're doing angles and curved radii and three-axis, your wheel diameter now matters. But for the most part, if you're doing flat work, it's not a big deal. But so you tell it the wheel diameter, you come down, you touch the wheel to the diamond and teach that position. And that's basically setting a work offset for the diamond position and creating a tool length for the tool. And then you go over and you dust a part and you can create the work offset for the part at the top of the part and part top zero and you're working down or I run it on the magnet 
And oh, okay. whatever I'm programming is the part I want the height to be or the height I want the part to be. So, yeah, like you said, basically you touch a part of a known height, regrind it real quick. You don't want to start from like raw stock. You want something that's stabilized, already has a flat and parallel surface, and you're just dusting the other side. And then you measure it, and then you input that as your current height on your work offset, and you're good to go. Um, so it's uh, easily the most consistent machine thermally I've ever ran. It, its ability to maintain size through all day is astonishing. And part of that is it doesn't get hot. Um, you know, it's it's a very basic machine in that term or in that respect. It's it's a six thousand RPM spindle, but I'm running like two to three thousand RPMs, and that's about all that's happening. So it doesn't create a lot of heat like a high speed mill spindle does, and so the the frame stays really really still all day. Wow, that sounds like such a killer machine. It's easily the most pleasurable machine I've ran. You know, I've ran a lot of really high end stuff, sips, mores, the mori, you know. And uh, it just does exactly what I want all day, every day. So That's awesome. Well, let's jump into some business stuff because we had a few questions about just being, a, you know, solo in your business. Uh, Pedal Jones asked, looking back, is there anything you do differently about going solo in your own business? Uh, you know, sometimes I almost wish I would have created two businesses. Like, this is my interest, my hobby. It's really what I enjoy. It's what I wear, wanna, where I want to be. I'm probably never going to be like super rich doing it. And so sometimes I wish I would have, before you start a business, you have a lot of free time. You know, you have nights, weekends to think about how you're going to start your business, plan it, and you get all these pieces in place. But I mean, there, there's ample time. And I wish I would have used that time to maybe do something that operates without me. And it could be wide variety of things, but some kind of service-based company. Maybe, maybe it's coding. Maybe, maybe it's like specialty tool steel material supply. Maybe it's a industrial cleaning company that knows what parts of a CNC mill to spray and wipe and what parts <laughs> not to and how to lock out tag out mills and something like I could have used my free time to get up and running, got a few key employees in and then, you know, Right. Passing it only down. draws my attention 20 to 30 hours a week. And then I can focus on my other business. Um, as far as my business now, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably happy with what it is. So. Okay. And then his other question for both of us was what you thought of or planned safety nets. If you're unable to work for an extended period of time. So I still have my design portion. So like, let's say, you know, break both my legs or something. I can work from a computer and still earn. Uh, but on top of that, we don't have any personal debt and that's really, really important is we got our personal financial affairs well in order prior to any of this. Um, and so if this all shut down overnight, I'm not super duper worried about it. So, yeah, I, I, I'd say similarly, like we don't have a lot of debt personally and, uh, you know, I worst case, my wife is always still working and like it would be uncomfortable. We could always live off of her salary for a short period of time if we needed to. And really, even in the business, we never took on 
more debt. I mean, I, I guess that wouldn't cover like an extended period that I couldn't work, but let's say that all my work dried up. I know I could get a job that could cover every debt in the shop and give me enough money to live on. No problem. Yeah. I could like go cut rebar for a living or something and, you know, be, <laughs> be okay. So, yeah. Like when we were part time, that was something that Brad and I were very conscientious of is like, okay, worst case, if all the work dried up today, could we afford splitting the machine payment every month? And I was like, yeah, we could do that. You know, it, it would yeah. suck, but we could do it. And so that was a big thing for us. Yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen with the economy, but I do kind of think something weird's probably going to happen. You know, it's, I think something already weird has happened. And so it's, we're yeah, still in I, the like, weird. I, I feel like 2022 is going to be an odd one. And so part of my decision to go big with the grinder is I didn't want to not grow the business because I didn't know what the economy was going to do because I'll never know. But I wanted to grow it in a way that worked with a odd, abysmal, you know, downright hard to deal with economy if that were the case. And grinding was attractive because it lowers input costs so much. You have no hardly tool cost, like a dress costs pennies to, you know, 20 minutes of grinding and I have to shave a few pennies off the wheel. And so that's really attractive. And when you get start getting grinding jobs where it's the customer's machining and heat treat and they're sending you hardened blocks and you're just grinding, all of a sudden that's that's really, really nice from a bottom line and cash out the door perspective. And so that was kind of attractive. Like if something does happen in the economy, it sucks when you have to take on these small jobs and you spend half of what you make you know, goes right back out the door on material and tooling and you don't have that with grinding. So that, that was something I had in mind when I chose to go this direction. Cause I also looked at five axis mills and you don't get that with a five axis mill. You have to, you know, every job has a lot of, lot of tooling constraints that sometimes you're buying weird hole making solutions or you need new work holding. And so it's, it's expensive to get into and it's expensive to stay in. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I, that seems to be a recurring thing coming up is that, you know, grinding is from a cost perspective is so low. Like if you're good at it, that's really what you need is yeah. skill. And that's about it. I don't know. It, if I, I don't even know so much about the skill thing at this point. Like if I were to bring <laughs> in an employee, I would probably put them on the grinders. Really? And I would stay on the mills. Not going to okay. do that. But, <laughs> uh, um, it's just when you look at what you have going on with the grinder, yeah, you're operating at very, very tight tolerances, but the machine's so easily capable of it. I have the metrology feedback loop in place, so that's not a problem. And when, at the end of the day, it's two plus one axie you're worried about and one tool. Whereas on a mill, you know, extra axie, way more tools, uh, tools doing different things and a lot more programming. So yeah, grinders are very approachable in that regard. Okay. That and there's uh, never any work holding. You never ask, how am I going to hold this? And you stick it on the magnet and you go. That's yeah, I, I guess that's true. Um, so how do you, or do you just not quote anything that requires grinding? That's not magnetic. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> I had a job earlier this year and a guy wanted it out of a 300 series stainless steel and it was going to require some, some really precise micro milling and then some really precise grinding, both in flatness and some slot grinding. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that. It's not magnetic. And quickly the material requirements changed. Um, and I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, we got a magnetic alloy and yeah, then doing, it had a really thin floor on it too. And it would, it would have buckled with any kind of vice pressure and just being able to suck it down to the magnet. Now I do have one customer who sends me an enormous amount of steel work for the grinder, but they also have these copper resistance welders and the tolerances on them do require grinding. And so I do have to grind a little copper every now and then, but I do have, um, they're like a flexure with teeth. And when you turn them on, they mag down they're made by Herman Schmidt. Oh, cool. And, um, those hold the copper pretty well. Even then, like, even if you don't have those, you could just put a, a block on either end and kind of like tap it with a piece of brass after you turn the magnet on. And that, that holds apart pretty stably, but. For the most part, if it's a precision part, I want to be able to hold it with a magnet. I, I think that's totally fair. And that, that standardizes just my work holding approach, like across all the machines. Like I have a milling magnet for the Haas if I need. And uh, I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't have to ever have that thought process of how am I going to hold it. How do you deal with chips and the magnet? Like that how are you sucks. cleaning with? Yeah. <laughs> So for the hard milling magnets, they have a wider pole spacing. So if you draw a line from pole to pole, like an arc, Mm -hmm. the tighter the pole spacing, the shorter that arc is. And the high point of the arc is where the magnetic force is the most strong. So you get the spacing a little bit wider and it raises that high point of the arc between poles. And so milling magnets tend to be a wider, coarser pull spacing, and it makes it so the face of the magnet isn't that magnetic. And so milling chips with enough air pressure can be blasted right off the face of the magnet. But um, every once in a while, you have a part blocking a corner, and you're, you're not getting air, ple- air pressure there, and you, you'll, you'll hear your milling cutter kind of going around. And so all my parts have chamfers on the bottom. And so if I want to mill the perimeter of the part, I'll just keep it like a thou off the magnet. Okay. And the the chamfer makes it so you can mill the entire part, but not mill into your magnet. And you'll be milling around at the bottom and you'll you'll hear like a chip get under the end mill. It's like, Ooh. <laughs> so, oh. so there goes the floor finish that end mill can create. So right. But um yeah. As long as you can get air where you need it, it's not a big deal. Uh, on the grinders, it's not a problem because usually the wheels just staying as tall as the part is. It's not like going down beside the part. So, but yeah, it's more of a sludge anyway. It doesn't really mess with the wheel too much. Do you have any tricks to cleaning like your uh, the one in your mill? Like, how do you get that? Do you just blast it with air? And yeah, once you uh, once you turn it off. Just a little puff of air will fly right off. There's no okay. residual magnetism holding the chips in place. Uh, there's not enough mass to them for it to matter. Um, but yeah, then then afterwards, so I run air blast on the mills, but 
since I run cutting oil, like <laughs> sticks to everything. Well, not sticky, but like the cutting oil manages to work its way up the air blast nozzle. So when I'm running air blast, it's really air oil mist. <laughs> okay. And so like in between parts, you have to, you have to get a chem wipe and some alcohol and kind of sanitize the chuck and then white stone and, and get all that oil off before you see your next part. But yeah, like that is the one annoying part is like, you'll, you'll have the door up on the Mori. It'll go to measure a tool and there'll be like a little, little bead of oil on top of the air blast on the Blum laser. And it's pointed right at your face. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few ruined t-shirts from that. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, Obsidian <clears throat> tools asked, where do you see your shop and the work you do in five years? And what did you think five years ago about today? Uh, so I always knew I was going to have a shop, you know, the five years ago question. Um, my dad ran a pretty large business and I kind of knew that was the direction I was going to head as well. And, um, it was just kind of a matter of what and when, and kind of tool making work for me. I liked it. I liked the idea of not having a huge business, just kind of being alone in my garage. So I didn't know precisely it'd be this variety of tool making, but I did know it was going to be intricate one-offs, that kind of thing, you know, and, and did know it was going to be in a shop on my property. I didn't know it was going to be this small. <laughs> now, five years in the future, it's probably not going to be this house anymore. We're talking about moving someday. Um, but I don't see the shop being that much bigger, maybe 600 square foot. And, That's almost another double. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I do see is it being a lot more intelligently laid out. So I would love like a airlock type room. Mm. So you walk in man door and a garage door, and then there's another set of man doors and garage doors to the actual shop. And that first room has maybe like a used forklift. It's got storage. It's got my air compressor. All the, the noisy, dirty stuff is in that first room. Oh, sandblaster, bead blast cabinet. I'd love one of those, but I cannot bring it into the shop right now. Right. And, and then in the second room, which is now much more sealed air-wise, that's where all my equipment would be. And that second room would still probably be about 400 square foot. Uh, and so that's the shop of the future. As far as actual machines, sometimes I think I have these two mills which cannot share work. So the benefit of having two mills in no way helps. Like, you know, you can't share the load or if one breaks. There's Mori work and there's Haas work and they don't interchange. And so sometimes I think the thing to do would be replace them with a mill, which is kind of in between capacity wise, like give up some of my spindle RPM, but find something that still has good accuracy, has glass scales, uh, about the same travels as the Haas and something like that for starters. And then the second one would be better than two very wildly different machines. Um, but it'd still be, you know, mills and grinders, I think. A lot of people ask me if, when I'm getting a wire EDM, but as it stands now, like, you know, when you look at what's so great about a wire EDM, it's also why I'll probably never own one. It is by far the most easily obtained, uninterrupted, 
lights out cutting easier than a bar fed lathe. You right. can, you can with minimal setup and hardly no tooling get a 40 hour burn sometimes, you know, it's just 3000 a year cutting hours for a machine that's mid 100,000 very doable. It's so obtainable, so easy to get into that way when compared to other advanced unattended type machining that anybody who has need for wire EDM buys a wire EDM. So all my customers just bring wire EDM in the house. And so I don't think I would ever, ever want a job shop with a wire EDM. The only way I'd ever do it is if I had internal need. And I sometimes think like, well, maybe I can convince the nice people to like up this feature, you know, instead of, instead of being okay with a water jet cut, it's a wire EDM cut. And I, and I create need with my current customer base that way. And I do some knife parts. I do some general job shopping and then I come up with a product and the, the three of those combined justifies an EDM. But eh, at the end of the day, I could buy EDM time for like $45 an hour. And so like when I look at the potential hourly billings, even though, yeah, you can, you can run one 80 hours a week. Sometimes some cases, it's just, I would, I would sooner put that money into CNC milling or grinding. Yeah, that makes sense. What, uh, have you found a CNC mill that you think fits that bill of like kind of a midway between the Haas and the Mori? I do. I'm not sure they sell them in the U S there is one in the U S but I think it was kind of like, Hey, we both speak German kind of deal. And it's a Fellman Pico max 56. Okay. Uh, and it is like the, so I kind of view the Haas as like the modern, the mini mill is like the modern Bridgeport. Yeah, for sure. And it is the ideal interpretation of that. It's uh, glass scales. Uh, it's ISO 30, which I'm, I'm okay stepping down to that taper. Uh, it's more, I think it's either 12 or 14,000 RPM spindle and Heidenheim control. And it um, it's just really a high quality Swiss built version of the Haas mini mill, uh, 30 tool changer, which would be nice. And something like that would be great. I've seen application cases of it hard cutting seems to handle it great, nice finishes. So uh, that would be the dream. I don't think they that will happen though. Uh, and then slightly more expensive would be like a Makino F3. Oh, okay. So that's that's a proper hard cutting mill at that point. Um, there's really not much that's a small and b high performance in the low 100s. Like there are some nice 40 taper, 40 by 20 machines, which you could probably do some decent 2D hard cutting in, mm -hmm. like the Akuma Genos, but they are huge. Nobody makes a small machine in that class. Um, yeah, I've seen a Genos in person and that would be your entire shop. Yeah. Like you would fall backwards into one right now if you had it in your shop. Like even DMG Mori, they sell that CMX machine and they make a 600 millimeter travel but it's just narrower it's still like the same huge depth and it still has you know all the drama of like external coolant tanks and you know a lot of floor space requirements so um i like machines where the entirety of the machining apparatus is in the footprint you don't have mm -hmm. like external chiller you don't have external coolant tank high pressure coolant unit um you know, because that stuff really, it's almost like having a whole nother machine for space-wise. It really like back is. Back when I was yeah. looking at 
five axis or five, yeah, five axis mills, I looked at the Hermless C250 and the way they lay that thing out, it's like, um, that kind of Z shaped Tetris piece for the support equipment. Mm-hmm. You have, you have a, a relatively small machine. Then you have this huge chip conveyor and then off to the other side, all this, uh, support equipment. And then if you want more than 30 tools, you have this huge tool change magazine and, uh, all of a sudden it's like big as my garage and it's a 250 millimeter platter machine. So there was another, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the company. Um, they're, they make wire EDMs mainly and their the logo's green, but they have a 30 taper. So linear motor Sodic, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. That linear motor, uh, 30 taper drill tap is pretty cool. I don't understand why other drill tap manufacturers haven't gotten on that. Like, I mean, it just seems like I, I, I don't think Fanuc's the fastest to change their ways company, but like, <laughs> you know, at least, you know, be an option for like the brothers or something. Because right. it, you, like when you look at what a 30 taper drill tap machine does, the linear motor makes a lot of sense. So, right. Like cutting and it's all about speed. I mean, that's like yeah. their whole gambit is like, look how fast we are. So that would make sense. The 30 taper drill tap machine, that certainly comes to mind sometimes when I think about, you know, an upgrade or a new machine to replace the Haas. I don't think it would be another Haas mini mill. Uh, for for the type of stuff I do where I'm like preheat treat, I'm just roughing it square and drilling holes. It's great for that. But anything past that, it's kind of a liability. And going forward, I want more flexibility in milling, not less. So, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's see. So your co-host, Josh Hacko submitted a few questions. And before I get into them, if you guys are listening to this podcast and not listening to Adam and Josh's precision microcast, you need to stop this right now and go listen to the backlog because it is by far one of my favorite podcasts out there. I I think he was a little miffed. We haven't managed to record one in a while (laughs) and I'm talking (laughs) to you. So, Well, you guys are both busy and on opposite sides of the world, so that I'm sure makes scheduling even harder. Well, you know what? It's actually not that bad because I'm kind of an early riser. Okay. So as I'm getting up, he's getting off work. So normally we we start recording about 4:30 a.m. my time, and yeah, it just it kind of lines up both of our schedules pretty well. So, um, it's easier to talk to him than it is people in Europe or people in California. Oh, interesting. Okay. But yeah, for anybody who doesn't listen to that, go listen to it. It, it you guys, I always have to re-listen to your episodes because you guys are it, like, there's so much information that I always know I missed something. Like I just started re-listening to your most recent one uh, just because ASML is such an interesting topic and EUV in general is like such a mind blowing advancement that it's cool to hear well that's kind of why we don't release many like there's a fair amount of research hours <laughs> that goes in and you know it's easy to find the information but a lot of what we research is just endless numbers and so coming up with comparative figures that work well in audio that that's we call it the heidenheim problem we actually did a whole segment about heidenheim its history its developments and it was number soup 
just this many picometers and that many pico and, and uh, we, we learned from that that you, you kind of got to make it relatable and easy to like you have to be able to picture mentally while driving and um, so yeah there's there's a fair bit of front end work and then like the editing's a bit of a chore too so that's you know it only takes two hours to record but there's probably four hours on either end of it yeah but yeah the, the EUV came up because you know we read the perfectionists as part of the book club on with intolerance and they actually mention in there one of those machines coming to uh tempe which is you know an hour and a half north of me mm-hmm. and intel is massive up there i mean if you talk to any of the machine tool manufacturers reps and they're like oh yeah you know i just sold x number of machines to this company because they're making stuff for intel it's like geez you know if only to get a, a taste of that work it would be great yeah ohio has nothing like that <laughs> we have no high-tech industries uh definition of the rust belt so <laughs> yeah because I've, I've had the same thought like Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even, you know, a a percentage of a percentage would be a a ton of work. It seems like early, early 2020, uh, I got a RFQ from Case Western Reserve uh, University in Ohio. It's a pretty good one. And it was um, one of their advanced materials labs or something. I was like, oh, this could be great. You know, it looks like they deal with ceramics. And, you know, I was, I was really excited. Like this was going to be my, my dipping my toe into more high tech type product lines and, you know, R and D work. And then COVID hit and locked, they, they closed the entire university down and just sent everyone home. I was like, well, so much for that. (laughs) Oh, well, hopefully it'll start popping back up then. But the lockdown did have the the effect of um, I got a, a new customer, a Silicon Valley type. They couldn't find anybody to make anything because of the lockdowns. And they heard about me and figured me being in my garage, I'm probably unaffected by it, which I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, that turned into a small but exciting customer. So I did have that going for me. Awesome. Well, I sidetracked us. Josh asked, yeah. uh, when reflecting back in your career, can you remember a moment when you were not satisfied with the trade? If so, what pulled you out of that rut? Oh, shoot. I was probably on nights for like three years. And this was during the 08 recession. And so uh, they had us down to 24 hours a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had survived four rounds of layoffs. And I just bought a house at the end of 07. So (laughs) I was like, boy, this, uh, this work hard, pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing. It's not, it's not really feeling too sweet. Um, and then like the work I was doing, the one like client they were clinging on to, they had some really interesting work. This is the place that did huge stuff. All the cool stuff just stopped. And basically all they had going for them was a company that was a tube supplier and sending us raw bullet forged tubing. And we were boring honing and rough turning and then finished turning. And so like literally all we were doing was making shiny tubes. No, no other features at all. (laughs) And it was really just like eating at my psyche. And then I kind of got to the point where I'm like, none of this matters. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm playing on, I'm playing on a machine that has, 35 feet of travel and Z. Um, so that's cool. And I just, I've learned to separate personal satisfaction from my career. And I'm lucky I learned that at a relatively early stage in my career. 
And because I don't know, I've worked on a lot of projects where like, yeah, so this is stupid, but I'm getting paid. You know, you, right. you just don't, don't necessarily try to derive satisfaction from your outputs or what you're doing. Try to get satisfaction in how you're doing it is kind of where I came to. Yeah. I, I would very often say to my coworkers when they would complain about work, like, dude, you're paid hourly. It doesn't matter if they're asking you to redo work eight times. You still go home with a paycheck. Just do it and get paid. Like, yep. <laughs> get her done. I learned being the nice kind of pleasant guy at work made me feel better than the cool edgy guy. So <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Uh, Josh's next question was, what's the worst crash that you've seen? And in a similar vein, what are your thoughts on parts display cabinets? And this sounds like there might be a uh, a story there. <laughs> no, I just always joke, like when you go into a company and you see like, you know, some intricate, you know, five axis part, some weird alloy in the display cabinets. Like, so that got scrapped. <laughs> like <laughs> They didn't yeah. make an extra out of, you know, a $3,500 piece of ink and just cause. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so that's always like when I went on the tour of, uh, Penn United or Parker's parent company, we were walking by their display cabinet and there was this huge piece of carbide. This thing probably weighed 80 pounds oh, and geez. had all these pockets in it. And, you know, just really, really intricate. And I go, who's the poor soul who scrapped that thing. And my tour guy's like, Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I felt a little bad. <laughs> And he kind of explained what happened and, you know, what the part needed and why it went wrong. And I was like, oh, I feel like a jerk. But um, worst crash, probably back to the place that did the big stuff. And this story is brought to you by a machinist with one finger. So let that paint paint the framework in your mind, if you will. (laughs) That tells me everything I need to know about a machinist usually. Um, But... uh, he uh, he had a real nasty habit of setting stuff on the ways on this lathe. And it was a Pariba, and it was another 35-foot bed length. And I think it had a 60-inch chuck. Oh, my goodness. Big old machine. And he is turning this hydraulic cylinder for an offshore oil prop platform. It's what stabilizes and auto-levels the platform. And I think the, the ID on these were 32 inches on the cylinder. And the OD was as probably like a two or three inch wall thickness. And it had some flanges on the ends that we drilled and tapped. And then it had two big trunnions about a third the way in. And he is working between centers and he's got a steady rest about the third the way off the chuck. And uh, so he's just past the end of the centers and, and he's moving kind of down the shaft as it's rotating, he's wrapping down and he's going to cut another steady rest journal on the, the diameter of this tube and then move the second steady rest into position. Well, he had set this little brass beater he had on the ways in between, you know how it's like a V and a flat on a lathe and there's like that dead man space. That's non-precision. Mm-hmm. He'd always set stuff there and it drove me insane, but he had this uh, maybe one inch diameter brass bar. So the trunnions are spinning, just barely missing the lathe, the, the lathe's ways, but the the carriage was pushing this little brass beater along, 
And when it got to the, the trunnion pins, it caught the brass beater and lifted the tube up. And it broke the bolt holding the steady rest to the ways. And the steady rest went up with the part. And luckily, he's not spinning real quick, you know, maybe 30, 40 RPMs. It broke the center and the steady rest off. And it stayed in the jaws, but like it came down hard and it landed on the carriage cross slide and uh it messed up the steady rest really bad and it made some noise because it's tubing so it has some resonance when you know you lift it up and drop it on a lake oh my goodness (laughs) um but luckily because what it hit was that piece of brass it really didn't damage the waves so much but um that was like the scariest thing i've ever seen because like it's probably 30 foot long part you know bigger round than I am. And it's just like in the air momentarily. And it's like, Ooh, <laughs> but I'm um, sure everyone in the plant heard it probably too. Oh yeah. Yeah. The owners came out and we're all like, you know, trying to be doing something else. <laughs> Poor guys getting reamed a new one. And, Whew. but, uh, the other new, the other like worst crash, it was an Akuma cadet kind of new guy new to the turning. And he had, uh, it's like an eight inch chuck, but he had to bore and thread a 12 inch casing. And so he had these pie jaws on it or, you know, kind of hanging way out there. And he put a boring bar in tool six. And then a tool seven, he puts this beefy threading bar. And I'm like, boo, normally you want to have those pretty far apart on the tour- turret. And he bores and it gets through fine. And then he goes to thread and then, you know, zips in at a pretty good clip threading and it rams that boring bar right into one of the jaws. Oh, and no. It cracked where the X-axis slides on the box ways. It cracked right there. And that was the end of that machine. So, Oh, no. Wow. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and I didn't see that one. I heard that one. So. <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, Josh also asked, is it fair to assume that your best work often happens after 4 p.m., cocktail in one hand, other hand on the traverse wheel of the parker? Well, sometimes it's red wine, and unfortunately, the manual parker, like, it has this little flat area on the saddle in front of the reciprocating table where you set stuff, and there is a <laughs> very hard-to-get-out red wine stain there as a result. So. Oh, no. <laughs> but, oh, uh... Man. No, I'm I'm kind of out of my own head enough by the afternoon that I can do some pretty pretty like you have to stay laser focused type work then. Also Saturdays and Sundays. I don't work hard on Saturdays and Sundays, but I'm in the shop. Like I might just mill around, clean, put stuff away while one machine does something. Mm-hmm. I might get a machine set up or but usually if I need to like really make sure I get something dialed, it's it's on one of those days cuz there's just no distractions, but I mean, it's usually pretty light. Like I might come out for four hours on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Usually one of those hours is listening to Spencer Webb on his, uh, his Q and a. Oh yeah. Yeah. Spencer's great. So we had Samuel Vance asked any tips or tricks to extend tool life when hard milling 60 plus Rockwell D2. So hard milling has uh, a lot of the same requirements as regular milling, the consequence for violating those requirements is just greater. So things that you need to do in regular milling, you just need to do more. 
you need good tool run out. You need to get chips out of pockets via air or air oil. And you need to maintain good chip thickness, constant chip thickness. And so that's kind of when I see hard milling going wrong, that's usually the rub. Um, cusp height from previous operations, if you're doing ball milling, you need really, really consistent curtain of material all around that cavity if you're trying to get like a super consistent amount of deflection. <coughs> Inconsistent cups, cusp can lead to decreased tool life. So look at that. Look at rest material and corners. That could be a, a tricky area. Um, and, and back to the consistent chip thickness, look at how well your machine maintains feed rate. So I have a tool I run in both machines, and the recommended feed rate is like 335 inches a minute, and that's what I run mm. in the Mori. The only way you're going to get the part to move 335 inches a minute in the mini mill is if it's falling from an airplane. So <laughs> on that machine, I drop the speed rate down to a point or the spindle speed down to a point where I can get a consistent feed rate. The, like it's going to move that feed rate the whole time. And so, yeah, things take a lot longer over there, but dropping that feed rate or dropping the spindle speed and feed rate helps the tool life for versus spinning as quick as the hoss will go, but not being able to feed it appropriately. That makes sense. Yeah. You're just rubbing it otherwise. Yeah. And you, you have so many times you can rub the tool. And so make sure you're taking material each time you do. Okay. And then his other question was what tooling would you recommend when grinding large inserts, 400 by 400 by 200 millimeter square posts? heat tree he's they're currently using angle plates so that, that's a that's a hunk of steel right there that's like i did the math it's it's 553 pounds and <laughs> or 251 kilograms and so most of the fixtures that speed up squaring work by attaching a pallet uh homa multi-chuck is one Aroa, 3R, you can all use those systems. Uh, Herman Schmidt offers something that works with either. They all work by attaching a pallet, and then you have this base that you rotate the part on 90 degrees then. Uh, at that weight, that's really going to be like flexing that base. I mean, you, you have to have a really, really stout system to hold that base in place. So any solution you come up with is going to, the part's going to need to transfer the weight from the part directly down into the table. I don't think you're going to be able to cantilever it and expect any kind of good accuracy. And with that being the case, it, it sounds like maybe an angle plate's your best bet. Uh, you can maybe go to a magnetic angle plate to speed up the amount of time it takes to clamp it. You know, you don't have to mess with C-clamps or straps. Uh, or you can get rid of the angle plate altogether and just set the block on the grinder and do what's called step grinding, or you could use shims. And basically, you figure out which way it's leaning. Say it's leaning this way, 50 microns. And you mark the high spot on the bottom, and then you remove, um, you do your math, figure out how many microns per centimeter you need to remove. And then you'd remove the corresponding amount to get it to tip over from that one side of the bottom. 
Uh, and that's called step grinding. And there's a whole written procedure I have. I don't, I don't think it's too time consuming on small parts, but it might suck on something that heavy, just like, cause it takes a, a bit of a measuring feedback loop. You have to measure the squareness, figure out how much to correct, put it on the machine, check your results. And so moving something that heavy on and off of a granite base or a granite table, that could be time consuming in itself. But uh, I have not seen a commercial product that can handle squaring something that heavy quickly other than an angle plate. Oh, well, yeah. you, you do have the option of there's horizontal spindle grinders. So it's like a horizontal mill. You lay your part on the table, mag it, and then the the face grinding wheel would then grind the side of the block versus the top. Uh, but I mean, I don't see any of those new. I think Madison made them back in the day. So unless you have access to one of those, I'd say your best bet's an angle plate. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's a hunk of steel. I don't own an angle plate. Really? Yeah. That's it's one of those things like um, if I have something big I'm squaring, I do that step grinding procedure I'm talking about, or mm-hmm. I'll step grind the first part. Like right now I have a bunch of, um, ah, they're about eight by four by two inch blocks. So I'll step grind the first one nice and square, and then I'll clamp the next one to that first one. Oh, sorry. Like I'll tr- treat it as an angle plate. So Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think you posted about uh, step grinding a while back and kind of showed, or maybe it was in your stories, kind of showed yeah. your methodology. I do that information it. in the stories for whatever reason. I don't feel like going through and writing it all out. Like I look at some of the post Laney machine tool or machine tech makes. I'm like, who's got time to write all that? Like, yeah, you know, he's, you know, just it's very concise and information dense, but I just. Uh, I don't, know. I don't want to do that. So yeah, no, I'll, just make, great. I'll just make a 15 second story. Yeah, it's great for the rest of us. Like I go back yeah. to his stuff all the time, but I'm the same way. I've kind of moved a lot to stories just because it's easier. Yeah. Uh, oh, Josh Gordon asked about Danny's fixture that you made and how you got the vanishing parting line, because that was a, quite a gorgeous piece of tooling. Anybody on any machine can do that. That's more of a toolpath and constant cutter deflection trick than it is anything else. I did it in my Mori, but I could do that in my Haas. And so you're using the same tool at the same comp to cut both sides. And so because of that, and it has to cut the face and the angle surfaces, you can't use separate tools to do that. And so when you do it that way, whatever errors in the machine motion, it's going to cut into the duplicate or the the mirror part and so if it cuts the pocket side of the receiving half too big that means it'll it'll also cut the male side too big and you'll still get the same amount of fit when it goes together um so i did that with a bull nose in mill because there was so much flat area i wanted a bull nose to try to get that flattened off quicker. I didn't feel like micro milling it with a ball mill all day, but, uh, yeah, you could use a ball mill or, uh, the, the trick is to have good radius control on the tool grind. Um, so I use like mold and die class tooling for a lot of what I do. These particular tools were made by union tool and I think they hold three microns on tool radii. So, oh wow. 
Um, but uh, yeah, as long as you have a, a good, precise tool radius and good run out, you're going to get a really nice finish and a, a really good lockup between the parts as long as they're cut same machine. And and then it's just a simple case of putting them together and grinding it. Okay. You grind both halves together. Now during the design stage, that kind of that kind of fit is a little fussy about grit in the corners. So if there's like a female corner or an internal corner and it's say half a millimeter, you would make the male corner going into it, you would radius it like point. Uh, five, five millimeters, just a little bit bigger. And so when it goes together, there's an imperceptible gap, but it's big enough to let any, you know, lint or oil be in. Uh, and so it's really only shutting off, you know, to use mold speak, it's really only touching face to face on the, the flat surfaces, not the radii. Cause even with okay. high caliber cutting tools and a good machine, you're, you're, 3D generated radii are going to be the most suspect when it comes to imperfection. That makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, Paul Alfaro just asked that you, he would love if you wore a GoPro and do a day in the life just so we can see all the cool stuff you're doing. Back to that. Back to that. Why I don't do posts and stories instead. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. Yeah. Like filming in the shop seems like such a pain in the butt. Uh, so and then the last question that i have kind of left for shop do's and new things was uh another one of sam link's designs what's your favorite metrology tool because i wanted to talk about your new metrology tool as well that thing's pretty sweet um as far as my favorite i think it's the combination of a brown and sharp best test 50 millionths indicator and the the herman schmidt or merkin indicator base. That is something I use daily. Uh, I think it's a really stable indicator base. It's small. You could check squareness if, with it if you want. Uh, it's small enough. You can like take it inside of a, a die and check heights on the die. And it's. Uh, I think it has a good aesthetic. It's a nice looking tool, which is important. And um, yeah, that's that's just the one I I reach for a lot. I admire it when I handle it. It's got a flexure. I like those. Um, so it's it it checks all the boxes for me in terms of things I like. Okay. Well, then, yeah. Let's move on to shop news and new things. Let's let's talk new. So yeah, most recent acquisition, and I'm talking like yesterday, was a Heidenheim Metro length gauge, and. I think you said it best. I didn't know Heidenheim made gauges and they, they don't pursue that sector of sales super strong. Most of the time when you see Heidenheim gauging solutions, it's in like a factory gauge custom gauge where you set like a transmission case in it and a bunch of pneumatic gauges come forward and take, you know, 27 points, you know, data logs it. They sell components for gauging. They sell digital readouts. They sell armored cords. They sell air gauges or pneumatic actuated gauges, I should say, motorized gauges, all different travels and lengths and, you know, attribute types. They don't sell a package. They sell these various parts you can make into anything you want. And so 
not a lot of people use them for benchtop height gauging, but they're extraordinarily capable. So the the probe I went with is one of their ball bushing series. So instead of a shaft and a bronze guide like most axial indicators, this has ball bushings like a die shoe goes up and down. And so it makes for pretty stiff movement uh, in terms of wiggle side to side. It's very accurate that way. Uh, but then you can also get really low gauging forces because of that. And it has 60 millimeters of travel, which that's like um, 2.36 inch roughly. So not quite two and three eighths inches. And then within that travel, the Metro series has 0.2 microns accuracy, which 0.2 microns is eight millionths of an inch. <laughs> now mine, the cert says it's operating at 0.14 micron, um, which is 5.5 millions. Now, if you need more accuracy, you can always <laughs> go up to the Certo class. And where you see Certos usually is gauge block, uh, gauge block calibration. So the Certos have 0.03 micron accuracy, which is about one millionth of an inch. Wow. And um, that's across the whole, the whole travel. But, um, in order to get that travel, they kind of take human hand movement out of it. Like you don't have a spring plunger. You don't grab the needle and move it up and down. It's motorized. You hit an up button, you slide your part underneath, you hit a down button and it spits out the, the number on the digital readout. But, um, so I knew I spend a lot of time building block stacks. You know, I have, um, currently 40 some components I have to grind. And just looking at the prints, it's about 20, 20 block stack combinations. And one of the things like I used to do is at the beginning of the morning when my hands are clean, I would build my block stacks because you can't, you don't want to build block stacks with gritty hands from grinding. You want your hands hermetically clean. And so to have to do it in the middle of the day, you have to stop, clean your hands, you know, wiped everything down. And so doing it in the morning made a lot of sense. But as I see more work, more volume and sizes, I was at a point where I didn't have enough blocks to accommodate that, even with an 81-piece set. So I was thinking, well, maybe I buy a second set of gauge blocks. And then, I mean, that's several thousand dollars. And then I was like, well, maybe it's time to go digital. And the first thing I looked at was the TISA U-Height, which is, TISA has their micro-height height gauges. I think you have one, don't you? Yeah, we just got one. And they're pretty darn good. Like I've used them before. I like them. Well, the U-height is a very, very small version of that, which doesn't sit on granite. It actually has a granite stand and it only has four inches of travel. Uh, but it, it would give me all kind of capacity to like measure bores and, you know, distance from face to a bore, stuff like that. And that stuff's all neat but it was just a tiny, tiny bit light on accuracy. Like when I look at the resolution and accuracy of my machine, it was right there. And my preference is that my metrology be better than the machine. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it didn't seem like the best choice for the mill or for the grinder. It, it made a lot of sense for like the Haas, checking parts coming off the Haas. I thought it'd do great there, but I didn't, didn't really need that at the moment. So, uh, 
one thing led to another, and I ended up in, you know, a much more expensive class of machine with the Hyde 9 Metro. <laughs> you know how it is. You you kind of talk yourself up. And, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe I can go a little cheaper and buy just the one millimeter travel. And and uh, I don't know. He's like, well, that, that would kind of suck having to having to slide the thing up and recalibrate it every time I had a two inch. Okay, so we'll get the 60 millimeter travel. And, and then it's like, well you'll get more accuracy with the motorized versus the spring plunger. And, you know, it, it really spirals. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, if I'm already spending the money, I mean, yeah, but I'd kind of ask Robin, like he has, uh, an older version. He use, he uses, um, he's makes like these custom keyway gauges. Mm-hmm. And I had never really seen one used in a shop environment. I've always seen them either. Like I said, in you know, big factory settings where they're doing SPC on stuff or gauge block certification. So I was kind of, you know, wondering what his two cents on it were. And cause I don't know. I, I see like a lot of his workflow makes a lot of sense. So I thought, eh, we'll see what he thinks on it. And he said, why don't you try looking used? And sure enough, there's a lot of options on eBay. And so I, uh, Back to that Heidenheim digital readout I have on the grinder. I'm only running two of the three axi. I thought, okay, let's just buy a probe. I'll plug it into the spare axi on that readout. I have enough cord to get over to my existing height gauge and uh, our height gauge stand. And then I can, I can see how I like that system. And so I order a probe as a few hundred dollars used. Looked in really nice condition in the photos. Everything's great. The guy wrapped the cord around the 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 probe like he was wrapping a paragrip handle or mm. a paracord handle on a knife. And it split the insulation like every point he wrapped it. And then it pulled the wires out of the the probe. And <laughs> like I was like, okay, I don't I, I he was nice enough and he returned it. No, no, no hassle there. But I was like the metrology is a, a key enough point of my shop. I don't really want to have any questions about used equipment. And so I thought, eh, let's just, let's just buy the new one. So, but, um, I also made the decision. Heidenheim makes the granite base with the post. I thought, Oh, let's just get that. And in the photo, I'm like, Oh yeah, 200 millimeters. That's not too big, but you know, I, I know it's about eight inches, but when it gets here, it's like, holy cow, that thing's huge. Like the post <laughs> is the size of a pop can in diameter. And uh, it just, it takes up a fair amount of bench space, but it's it's immense. Uh, easily the nicest height, height stand I've ever dealt with, though. Really, really smooth, consistent lockup on the post. But I would say that's probably going to be it on purchases for a while. I, I I've solved every problem I want to for the time being. I have good tool management for the Haas. I have good storage for all the machines. I I, uh, I have good metrology for the grinders. I have bench space now for the grinders. So I'm sure I'll invent a new problem, but for the time being, I think I'm going to try to see how little money I can spend in 2022 because we earn a lot. I just spend it all. I mean, I pay right. myself. Don't get me wrong, but like, I, uh, I I like growing the business through technology, and so I'm always buying technology. But, uh, yeah, I want to take a year and see how much money I could save. Yeah, I think that's admirable, and it's 
I completely agree. Like, I find it very hard to save money when you're like, but I can add this and make more money with the shop. And, yeah. And this and this and this. And it's like, yeah, but that adds up pretty quick. Yeah. Check back with me in about February. See what I've bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See whatever end of year deals all of a sudden pop up. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Like, there's no end of year deals with Heidenheim. You know, like Tisa had some pr- promotion, but, uh, you know, hide nine. It's like, well, here's our catalog. You pick out what you need. And it's like, right. oh, there's there's 72 probe options and, you know, three DRO types and three different height gauges. And there, there's no spirit guide to walk you through the process, so to speak. And it's just like, well, this is the list price. You want it or not? And so, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that it's always frustrating dealing with companies like that. Like even uh, Lang is very similar. You know, they're like, yeah. They'll do I like see they have a Christmas, they yeah, have a Christmas promotion and I'm waiting. Like if they have the 46 millimeter quick change pallet base, I'm going to jump on it. But my experience, they never have the thing you need on promotion. So. No. And like we spent a ton of money at uh, my, my last day job with Lang. And even then I think we got like 5% off and I was like, oh, that's just like a pittance at this point. Like with yeah. how much we're spending with you. I almost pulled the trigger on that six jaw Chuck Lang makes. Oh yeah. I, I do cool. enough like rings for my, uh, sheet metal slitter company I deal with. And, uh, I was like, you know, my three jaw Chuck that came with the fourth axis, it's kind of cruddy. Like if I'm doing something thin walled, I'll add pie jaws, but pie jaws don't really work as well as a six jaw in my experience. And I was looking at this thing and, and I mean, it's beautiful. What makes it nice for a mill is how, thin it is it's you know the base is only like 27 millimeters thick it's like boy you know the the price is on par with a quality three jaw chuck or six jaw chuck for a lathe he's like i think i'll do it but then i saw like at the last second how the the quick jaw system works and it like dovetails in and then when you clamp it locks in i was like wait you can't id clamp that way right and, <laughs> and so that like you know I do a surprising amount of ID clamping. And so that kind of killed it right then and there. But I, I'm very happy with the one little vice I have from them. So I, I, I hear mixed results with their quick change bases. Like the accuracy in terms of XY position is good, but there might be some Abe error in how clocked it is. Oh, like if you put like a 12 inch ground bar in it, take it in, take it back out you might have some tram issues uh, at the ends of that bar. Um, but at least their pool studs stay in one piece. So <laughs> not all yeah. not all 96 millimeter base companies can say that. So no, no. I, and and I, I'm actually kind of finding that with all of not not the pull studs, but what you're talking about error. I'm finding that it seems like most of these companies with zero point systems expect you to have some sort of dynamic work offset yeah. to, for it to work perfectly. Yeah. And so, uh, I've never really dealt with any of them, the 96, like I've, I've dealt with three R stuff a lot, but that's like a whole different class. Um, the, the appeal to the 96 millimeters, it's so at, easy to like, just take a hunk of steel and put those studs in and make anything, a you know, a pallet. Um, so, I like to just dip my toes in the water with new stuff. And so I'll get the, I'll get the little receiver for my little vice and see how I get along with it. But, uh, 
So sometimes I, sometimes I end up with a lot of uh, half-conceived projects as a result. <laughs> you know, you, you spend a little bit of money, you try something out, and it just kind of sits because you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, we can all empathize with that <laughs> for sure. Well, that kind of brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is, what did you research this week? Ice cream machines. Are you up on the McDonald's ice cream scandal? Yes, that was my first introduction to Johnny on YouTube, and I have watched so many of his videos now, but I loved that. that I am I am enthralled with this because here's why. How has like some goon of a company like DMG Mori not been like, hey, let's uh, let's make it so you have to have a software reader to see what's wrong with the machine and charge you service fees just to tell your machine's low on hydraulic oil. I feel like McDonald's and Taylor ice cream machines are 10 years ahead of where the machine tool industry is going to be. Like there's no way people haven't thought, Oh, let's, let's make our service more expensive and not allow them to repair things because John Deere is doing it. Caterpillar is doing it. And so sooner or later, a service company is going to ask that a machine tool vendor do that. Like that's the big deal, like or the big difference is you know, Caterpillar kind of has their own service text through their their distribution networks, um, whereas you know machine tool companies are it's kind of like the wild west. You have all these small mom and pop distributors. You have a few larger ones. So I feel like that's the holdup. But yeah, whatever whatever's happening with this, I think we'll see eventually with machine tools. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, go to YouTube and type in the real reason McDonald's ice cream machines are always broken. And it's a video by Johnny Harris. And he goes through this surprisingly kind of dark backstory by 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 why all, you know, the McDonald's ice cream machines are always down. And it's uh, I kept getting recommended it by YouTube. And I was like, I don't care about McDonald's ice cream machines. And then I watched it. And I was like, oh, man, this is such an interesting story. Yeah. And so another company, I think, is Kitsch made an IoT device. So Taylor Ice Cream, you know, basically, if your ice cream machine has a problem, it alarms out. And then a tech has to come in with a reader and see what the alarm code is and then tell you what to do. And it could literally be something as simple as needs more sanitation fluid or something. Uh, And there are more complex failures, but like it'd be equivalent to not having enough whey oil in your machine and your machine just alarms out and it doesn't tell you why. Right. And yeah, which I mean, that does happen, (laughs) but but usually you figure it out. But um, so this company called Kitsch made a, IOT reader that hooks up to your Wi-Fi and goes in between the sensor wires and and the the brain on the the Taylor ice cream machine and it sends you a text message that says basically put more sanitation fluid in and uh, Taylor's suing Kitsch over this and uh, at, at one point it appears McDonald's has instructed Taylor to copy and offer it like they demand. And so Kitsch is now suing McDonald's and, and yeah, I think there's actually going to be some, some decent ramifications of this case. Like if Taylor and McDonald's gets away for, with it, I think right to repair will get worse. Mm -hmm. If Kitsch wins, maybe there's some hope, but, uh, 
yeah, it's just, it's, it's a weird thing for, you know, ice cream to be at the forefront of this fight, but I don't know. I, I was, I was sucked in by it. Yeah. I, I was watching another video about the John Deere cases that are going on. Cause I, I still don't think they've been fully tried yet. Uh, but like, I know Apple was involved with them and like yep. all of these big companies, because it does have ramifications for right to repair for everything, not just yep. John Deere. But my family, they're, they're farmers and dirt movers and they are keeping older legacy tractors running at all cost because they do not want new John Deere equipment for, or cat equipment for that reason. Um, it just blows up. But one thing they do that's interesting is my uncle, he, he doesn't really buy any new equipment. He's keeping his older stuff running, but he rents everything for the job. Oh, interesting. Like he'll rent, you know, a bulldozer for, you know, it could be like a half million dollar bulldozer and it's surprisingly little per month, like a few thousand dollars. And, uh, he, he really likes that. That doesn't really work with machine tools. Like I see DMG Maury's trying that to, to rent you a mill for a few months. I just feel like the logistics of dropping a bulldozer off on a trailer and it driving off the trailer and being ready to work are a little bit different than getting a mill rigged into a shop and powered and, you know, hooked up and leveled. So we'll see how that works out for DMG. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested at what their ideal customer is. Like, is it actually somebody who just needs it for six months or is it, are they hoping to just encourage these people to lease to own? Yeah. Like it's in there. There's probably like a removal fee. <laughs> Right, and then, and then you just go. Oh, I guess we'll just own it then. Yeah, because you're you're paying. I think it's like monthly, and then you're paying per spindle hour, if I remember right. Yeah. So uh, maybe if I get a big carbide milling project, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's you'll, you'll have to let us know if you end up doing that for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been uh, it's been good talking. Thank you for having me back on. So yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's uh, always great to talk to another small shop owner and especially one who's doing something so different from what I'm doing that I get to learn extra. It, it's really great. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I appreciate listening to all the uh, interviews. I always gain something no matter who's on. So, well, Thanks, Adam. And thank you, new Patreon thank yous to Ty from T5. Uh, where can people find you real quick before we close? Adam the Machinist on Instagram, and then Josh and I's podcast is the Precision Microcast, available on Spotify, Apple, and we have an RSS feed, and it also has an Instagram page, the Precision Microcast. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Adam. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll be back next week.